Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Good to have you with us. We look forward to these these uh, two-hour um, extravaganzas that, that Mark and I put together. Um, I want to thank, first off, um, Kent Quiethawk for that amazing introductorytellers.com, amazing site, and um, a way of preserving history that a lot of us aren't familiar with, but uh, should really get familiar with because it does bring history forward in time and attach us to our past in a rather unique way. Also, a reminder that Monday night, Michael Crema will be on Nightlight at 9 p.m. Eastern. But for today, we have a really super show. Mark has gotten award-winning filmmaker Frank Jacob to be with us, and um, you will be amazed at what he has done. So I'm going to bring Mark on. Hey, Mark, how are you doing today? Good. How are you, Barbara? Doing well. Good. Yeah, I think um, you know, maybe you know, with the Serpent Mound seed blessing thing going on right now and tomorrow too, it, you know, maybe we ought to just change our, our topic for today. You know, work in Ken's reference to unicorns, the Serpent Mound, and bears, and just have <laughs> an animal theme. Sh- show <laughs> well i you know i gotta tell you the the film that that frank is going to be talking about is is material that is so near and dear to my heart um mm-hmm. and it's material that isn't really or has not been really in the um i don't know the common talk of of most people and yet it is material that is so important that people be aware of and you know if it just makes them think i mean it's okay if you even don't agree so long as it makes you think about the possibility um it's it's a seed into your consciousness that is very important at these times right and you know i think uh or this afternoon show is going to uh lay the foundation for you know, some upcoming shows 
uh, you know, especially with um, the one in early uh, first Tuesday of April. So, uh, you know, we have something really unique lined up for today. And, you know, if the audience is uh, tired of March being <clears throat> an extra month of winter, uh, you know, or, or the uh, chemtrails more related to you know the climate change than our way of life. Uh, are you ready for a vacation? Well, you know, maybe uh, you should consider uh, Mars as a vacation destination. And you know, Frank Jacob is our guest, and he's going to be. Di- uh, discussing his role as being a writer, director, producer, and you know, he also wrote the musical score for his movie Packing for Mars. Uh, this is a movie that won the People's Choice Award at the 2016 UFO Conver- Congress Film Festival in a place very highly in a very large uh number of submissions of movies at Munich's 2018 Cosmic Sin uh, Film Festival. And, you know, Barbara and I really enjoyed it, too. So um, is the modern idea of visiting Mars based on real events from an ancient history? So, uh, you know, we're going to discuss that topic uh, for the next couple hours with our guest, Frank Jacobs. So welcome, Frank. How are you? Wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me, Mark. And hi, Barbara. Hi. Hey, uh, uh, Frank, have you any uh, bears in uh, <laughs> at, at, at your place today? Bears in the Bavarian Alps? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think they have any more of them this far down, uh, fortunately, Um well, or maybe not. I, I mean, I guess it'd be great to see a bear. We have deer. Okay. Yeah, deer, and they come, uh, and we have we have squirrels that come scratching our windows. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we should let people know that shortly before the beginning of the show, I had a bear in my backyard, and I had to excuse myself so that I could go chase it out of the yard. That's what they're referring to. Doesn't everyone? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Um, so, 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 so some of the stuff that goes on, and it's it, you know, it, always right before a show, so, so something cr- crazy like that happens, but it's all, it makes for a lively start to the show. But you know, Frank, what um, you know, as we get you know started talking about. Your movie, Packing for Mars. Uh, you know, why did you feel it, it was important to investigate this topic? Well, I, I've been given a book many years ago called Alternative Three. And the book was given to me by a fairly intelligent, you know, interesting character who's into biodynamic farming and really well read on history and on one of our visitation visits with him we uh, we got into this discussion uh, about the state of the uh, affairs on the planet 
And then he pulls out this book and he was saying how it's a book that's written as science fiction, that it was, uh, but that it's actually not fiction, that it's true. And he let me have the book and I took it with me. And the book actually is based on an, on a screenplay that was uh, a television show in England in 1977. And they called it also Alternative 3. And what made that interesting was that it was a science, a weekly science magazine called Science Report that normally held only factual, held to a factual narrative during their, uh, their shows, you know, reporting on the latest science and, and things that are in the world. And then for their sort of last show, they decided to, which they thought would be airing on April 1st, they decided to put together a spoof, so the story goes. And they wrote this crazy thriller about uh, a breakaway colony on Mars. And uh, Leslie Watkins at the time, an English um, really scholarly writer who was uh, a Fleet Street reporter, heard that or saw that broadcast in a rare moment of having, you know, not really being a TV person. He decided uh, to look further into it and ended up getting his publisher to to work with the screenwriters so that they could basically do a book version of, of the story. And his being a scholar who is a Fleet Street qualitative investigative reporter, he took the story so deep going into missing persons, climate change, uh, and, you know, the things that were the topics at the time, space as unexplained space phenomena. And he wrote really what is by today's standards still a, a real page turning thriller. And I you know, read it not thinking I was ever going to make a film out of it. But what's interesting about it is the book over 40 years ago was already talking about the kind of subject matter we hear in today's news all the time about, you know, the the climate change. And, you know, and I'll put in a a caveat here just because I'm mentioning climate change and uh, and uh, and all these things doesn't necessarily mean I I endorse the conventional view of climate change. So I'm just reporting it in the, in the sense mm-hmm. that climate change was was a topic in the late 70s. It started to be a topic. There were a lot of uh, you know prognostications of being up coming up to an ice age, and and uh, they were talking about the world in terms of population change and population reduction. And, and, and really actually very current and trendy subject matter for 40 years ago in today's perspective. So when I was looking to do a story or to do a film, let's just say, I was, I was looking to get uh, into doing a, a full-length documentary film. I'd been working at a network. I'd done a lot of shorter films. And I was looking for something that was a little bit crazy. And I'd forgotten about the book. And then one night I was surfing around and looking, and I'd actually recently come across the disclosure movement and Bill Ryan and Kerry Cassidy were two people that had sort of grasped that idea and begun Project Camelot, which was interviewing a lot of people that were part of this thing called disclosure, which was revealing secret technology to us that uh, apparently they were working on, which nobody here had ever heard about because we'd been kind of raised in the conventional school system and society to believe in a certain fixed set of physics and limitations uh, according to the speed of light and the stuff that they were talking about obviously would, would be outside of, of those rules. And uh, here was, you know, I heard this interview with the great granddaughter of Dwight Eisenhower talking about being recruited for a Mars colony. And I thought, whoa, I was like, okay, the book was great. And, and I thought it had a certain viability to it. And I was intrigued by the story that, 
you know, many researchers didn't believe it was uh, a fiction. In fact, you know, people uh, like uh, Mae Brussel, a very, very potent and dangerous investigative journalist in America, had the book in her library and called it the most dangerous book in her library. So having heard now all of a sudden today's world, this interview of uh, of a person representing themselves as the great granddaughter of Dwight D. Eisenhower, like not just someone that you'd never heard of, but actually somebody that was part of the American aristocracy, you could say, alongside of a very intellectual and well-spoken attorney called, um, you know, uh, Andrew Bushago. I was intrigued and I thought, okay, this is an interesting story. And I would be, it'd be cool to take this story of alternative three, which was already 40 years old and put it into today's modern context. Is there really any evidence that there might be like this breakaway civilization, which had set up a colony on the moon and actually set up a colony on Mars in order to preserve the human race from doom and destruction. So that was the kind of reason why I think I, I felt motivated to do it. It's a crazy story. It's, it's a very, very current topic in today's perspective of things. And I like crazy stories. And I also like the idea of things that are balancing the line between fiction and fact. Okay. Well, early in the movie, <clears throat> you, know, you do uh, give us examples where people aren't paying attention to things being hidden in plain sight. You know, uh, you know, you know there's some of the destructive technologies. Uh, you're also uh, looking at you know, the pharmaceutical industry and chemtrails nanotechnology and harp and all that stuff it, it, yes yeah all all these all, sciences that almost seem like they're being used as a weapon against us uh, what role is all of that material playing into you know packing colonizing from Mars, you know, getting ready to leave the, the Earth. Well, first of all, I, I actually, I'm not, the film doesn't really endorse us going to Mars at all so much as it does say that there is a faction of people which, which may be actually already settled and set up on Mars in the event of a worst case scenario. So some of those things you were mentioning like epidemics that are happening, um, you know, the influence of pharmaceuticals in society is humongous. I mean, mm -hmm. there's really not much people can do these days without uh, somehow having the pharmaceutical corporations have their fingers in their world. If, whether it's you enrolling your child in a regular elementary school in America or in Canada, where they now, there are cases where they won't let your child attend school unless they have a vaccination. And there's a lot of controversy around the safety of vaccinations. And then there's all these things going on in the skies above us that nobody officially has really ever acknowledged. They're still claiming that people who are mentioning things like chemtrails are wacky conspiracy theorists. I mean, I even had friends of my own that I was just putting posts up on Facebook, you know, that were, that were discussing uh, some pretty hard, edgy evidence about uh, chemtrails, and they just didn't want to go there <laughs> and they just think that you're like you're crazy if you're talking about this stuff you're just crazy you must be crazy 
you know, and my answer to the, to this always is that's cool that you're honest, but uh, some of us have to be the crazy ones that are willing to go down that path to see if it really is just a, a hoax or if it's real. And if you're looking at the skies these days, and if you've been monitoring what's going on, you have to say there's definitely some really crazy things going on that are undeniable geo-engineering uh, programs and now slowly and surely being dripped out even through the mainstream media where now, you know, uh, Harvard researchers are coming out with little droplets saying, oh, yes, we're going to be trying our first, you know, climate change reduction experiment where we can fertilize the skies with very finely dispersed carbon and uh, things like that. And you're going, really? Okay, now, so there, now you sort of see that these things kind of get, they get put out there and they get you you know put and used and utilized and when people enough people start to out, start an outcry about it then all of a sudden the academics and the mainstream jumps on and just drip drips this information out like it's something we need to do so that uh, when they finally come clean with having done these experiments uh, through more or less some kind of academic consensus then they can wave aside all the conspiracy theorists so that that kind of stuff is going on in, in the world. And, uh, you know, what else we talk about is just really um, like HARP. Uh, there's, there's a lot of evidence that for the last 50 or so years, there's been some major technological developments going on in, on both sides of the globe, in Russia and in America. You know, at a certain point, there really isn't nationality any longer. There's a supranational collective of people that are interested and and uh, studying and collaborating on global issues that are that go beyond the borders and things like harp and and weather manipulation and weather control um are those kinds of things whether they're using them altruistically to really truly stop climate change which you know a lot of people will put a lot of evidence in front of you thousands and thousands of scientists will sign papers saying the whole thing about man-made carbon emissions causing uh, greenhouse effect is completely unfounded. There's no evidence of it. It's just bogus. Um, and uh, and the others that are on the other camp saying, yes, there is climate change. You know, I have a lot of friends that believe in this. There's climate change going on. They're not stupid people. There is climate change going on. But if you look back even to the days of Genghis Khan, there were certain parts of the Alps that were completely uncovered there was no snow no ice whatsoever that are now completely frosted over so uh how far back do you want to go to look at climate change because i think you can show very clearly that there's been some very very strange climates that have happened on planet earth the last few hundred of hundreds hundreds of years but man has nothing to do with them so where it's all going where i'm going with this is essentially that uh, it's a, it's got to do with manipulation, manipulation on a very large scale of society by an elite few that are have that have some kind of agenda. Okay, well, yeah, the uh, yeah, there was the end of the last uh, ice age, what twelve thousand years ago, March. Another, right. Yeah, you know, just another example, and I, yeah, I, I just wonder what's the purpose of all the tiptoe uh, uh, patterns in the sky. You know, you know, they just kind of appear every few days over your house. Uh, that, that just doesn't seem uh, normal. Is that you know, cr- creating the next ice age? I, I, don't know, I, I don't know either. It's just, you know, there's, there's the evidence. You know, a lot of people talk about it. Uh, so who's 
do, do we know who is behind uh, you know these you know, this uh, misuse of technology? Is it just uh, uh, a, a few of the global elite families? Well, that's the big question that I think a lot of people are trying to get an answer to. Now, I mean, all there's all kinds of uh, different angles on this. There's some people that will say it's this um, cabal of 13 families that have been kind of shepherding us through history, uh, gradually and slowly uh, controlling society through social engineering projects that they are funding, that they are in control of, um, and their agenda in, the, uh, in terms of bloodlines, and their agenda in terms of, I guess, you know, world hegemony, having dominion over the planet that, uh, that sort of falls into this picture of like the Georgia Guidestones, if you've ever heard of yeah. those. Have you heard of the Georgia? Yeah, I mean, yeah. the Georgia Guidestones are, are pretty scary if you look at uh, those kind of numbers. Like that would mean a reduction of the population on the, on the magnitude of several billion to achieve that goal. Um, and how, how would that be done, right? And I mean, you'd have to think, okay, well, what would we do to eliminate 6.5 billion people on the planet to have this sort of yeah. and uh, who, who, yeah, and, and who who's going to decide who lives and dies? And who's going to decide who lives and dies? You know, and then there's the other side of things, which you know people are talking about, which discuss this on an extraterrestrial level, that 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 history and wars are not actually fought um, um, because of agendas that were human-made, but because of agendas that were manipulated by extraterrestrials and that the extraterrestrial factions that are on Earth themselves are warring, and we are their kind of de facto um, you know, puppet uh, armies that will fight these wars and, and, uh, and create this chaos on the planet for their be- on, on behalf of, of their agendas. Uh, and, and the two, you know, main, I think one of the main character, bad characters that comes out in this extraterrestrial view of things is the reptilians, the reptiles, as people like to always, the draconians or whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, okay. So are the reptilians or, you know, which species has uh, had the colony established on Mars? So it, let, let, let's get us up up to that that planet. What, you know, where 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 does all, all this information fit in? Well, it depends how far you go back. Um, what we're finding on Mars now, or at least those of us and those researchers who are willing to analyze the data which is coming back in fragments filtered through NASA and JPL and all these other you know controlling elements but nonetheless there's there's stuff that's dripping through there's stuff that's leaking through that shows clear evidence of an ancient civilization on the surface of Mars and you know nobody knows who this civilization was um however there's been some very interesting 
the theories that have been proposed lately that the inhabitants of Mars actually have a lot in common with humans. And the, uh, I think, you know, Michael Sala, for example, a really great author, mm-hmm. he's written a lot about, you know, he's, he's sort of allied with, um, with the information that Bill Tompkins was bringing out and with, with Corey Good and some of these people that were talking about the arrival about 60,000 years ago on Earth of these Martians with advanced technology that had escaped some catastrophe that was taking place on Mars and settled in uh, Antarctica. And they are now finding remnants on Antarctica deep under the frozen ice, archaeological remnants, uh, species, settlements, technology, which goes back to Mars. Now, I, don't, I haven't been there personally, and I do hold a lot of credibility to Michael Sala's work, and I do think there's a lot of credibility to something strange going on in Antarctica. I don't know how much of it is Martians, but what, what I find very interesting is the appearance of pyramids on the surface of Mars. And in Packing for Mars, we show you some of those pyramids. And we have J.J. Hertog, who was probably one of the first people, really the first research to come out, I think, you know, maybe 20 or 30 years ago already, with information relative to colonization, archaeological remnants found on Mars. And he was virtually ignored at the time. We have him talking about this in Packing for Mars, and he puts a lot of very interesting correlations between Mars and Earth into what he gave us in, in the interview. For example, like Cairo, the foundation of Cairo, the, the, the name Cairo actually can translate to Mars. And the foundations of some of the perimeters in Cairo line up with certain ge- uh, geological configurations on the surface of Mars. So there seems to be, and there's over 369 words in the English language that relate to uh, Mars. So there seems to be some very, very deep correlation archaeologically between Earth and Mars that go back a long, long time. Um, I don't know where the reptilians play into this. I mean, a lot of people uh, basically refer to the reptilians as some evil species that arrived here from some war in Orion, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Correct me if I'm wrong. And they, they came here and they basically, you know, dominated the planet. That some, there's some version of the story that they, uh, they connected with Nazi Germany and that they connected with Hitler and, and, uh, and, they, and they presented them with advanced technology for them to take over the planet. Uh, there's that whole story, and I know I'm over in Germany researching a lot of that now, trying to find evidence of whether that's true or not. And um, but I don't have a lot, I don't hold a lot of credibility to that version of the story for various reasons. We don't probably maybe we can get into them a little bit later. I'll just okay. brief, briefly touch on it now, uh, or that the reptilians, you know, fought with the Martians, and that there's this there's been this constant war. There's also um, um, another author in Germany that has basically brought out the, um, these chronicles uh, documenting his actual experience of being taken into the inner earth. And in the inner earth, he talks about a whole a series of species that withdrew into the inner earth, and one of them are the reptilians. Now, the reptilians he's talking about, they don't sound as nasty and vicious as the reptilians that are portrayed in 
you know, like the Wachowski brother films like Jupiter Rising or whatever. They're they're a different kind of and they're they look more human than you would think. In fact, they basically look very humanoid, but they have a scaly like skin. And it's very interesting because if you look back in history, uh, there is direct reference to scaly skinned organisms which uh, appear in the mythology of the Zulus and, uh, and they appear in the mythology of some of the um, information that was deciphered from the temples in Tijuanaca. And, uh, and we have some interesting, we found some interesting archaeological alignments with Teotihuacan, the city of the gods, as they call it, that show the relation between the positioning of the pyramids in that plaza and to be in direct correlation to Mars and Earth. So it's very, very, there's a lot of really powerful and interesting archaeological evidence. You don't even have to go far out in terms of being conspiracy-oriented to find traces or very uncanny coincidences that document our relationship between Mars and our civilization. Frank, you just mentioned you know, the pyramids on Mars and you know, some of the Central American uh, sites. It, it, it just seems like there's a, uh, you know, Mars and Earth have places that uh, well, almost mirror each other. And then you get, you know, the, uh, you know, Story that's been out there for a long time, you know, the, the uh, accompanying photographs of uh, the, the face on Mars. Yes. Uh, uh, what's you know the story behind the face on Mars? Is that part of you know, uh, is, you know a uh, extraterrestrial or human-made structure on Mars? Well, we have uh, Linda Moulton Howe in Packing for Mars talking about her experience of being ushered into some kind of uber-secret hallways in a security building, shown the um, photographs that were actually taken of the face on Mars back in the 70s during those Viking missions. And she says what, they, what she witnessed had much more clarity than the photographs that that uh, that we are shown in the public. Now, Richard Hoagland, you know, could be credited for being the first person to really kind of push the the Mars extraterrestrial civilization agenda and present evidence of it. And the face on Mars, I think, was one of those very very uh, early and very powerful um, connections that made us wonder if. There, that was really evidence of ET. And as we now know, of course, then later uh, missions and later photography that they took began to debunk that the face on Mars was actually what it was. They would say that it's just all mirrors and uh, smoke and mirrors or shadows and light, a play of shadows and light, and that paradelia takes over the imagination and humans like to see things that aren't there. But if you listen to Linda Moulton Howe's testimony about what she saw, then you would have to say, okay, now, obviously, she's delusional. Those people were trying to fool her, or there maybe really is some kind of an agenda going on with uh, photo manipulation. Um, And we uh, talk about that in the film, of course, because, you know, to find, there has to be, 
you know, if this kind of stuff is credible, there has to be evidence of photo manipulation. And there very definitively is evidence of photo manipulation that's taking place in the hallowed halls of NASA. Um, as we've found out, even, you know, we have Jose Escamilla, the late Jose Escamilla, the great uh, filmmaker that created those amazing moon rising documentaries showing how the uh, images on the moon have been tampered with. But since we released the film, and on the, I think the day that we actually won the People's Choice Award, we were approached by uh, Ken Johnson, who was an original NASA employee involved in developing and prototyping and beta testing a lot of the NASA and Apollo fo- uh, materials that were used on those missions. And at one point in his life, he was in touch with those. He was put in charge of the photographic evidence, and he found clear evidence of smudging and he himself walked in on smudging taking place so it's clear mm. that this is going on so the face on mars is something i didn't even really we didn't want to focus on in the film we um we like the um the you know the well over 100 year old now historical start we think of the actual fascination between earth on mars and modern history and that was with nikola tesla picking up a signal of light like a light beam that he registered coming from the surface of mars and he actually went to the top of Pikes Peak and began to flash back signals to try and start a communication between what he was convinced was a civilization on the surface of Mars. Um, now, J.J. Hertog brings it into another area altogether, uh, which they call the Elysium uh, Quarter, which is an area on the surface of Mars where you see distinct pyramidal shapes, which... Um, you know, we, we have Credo Mutkwa commenting on, which show definitively placed uh, clear pyramids, which is a cultural phenomenon, which has happened not just on Earth, but also on the moon and, of course, on, 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 um, on Mars. So we now have this correlation between um, monuments that have been left behind on these bodies all around us, which are indicative of the fact that we do have some kind of a solar heritage that goes well beyond our existence um, in modern history, as we were told in, 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 a school, in the school books of the 20th century. Yes. I have a question. Uh, oh. <clears throat> if, if I may. Has sure. there ever been any consideration that, that, we, that, that, that we have the story totally backwards, that we all were originally on Mars, it became uninhabitable, so we came to Earth, that we are really the Martians? Well, that's a very good point, and I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with that one, Barbara, because although we don't really come out and say it, I do believe that the evidence is there to support that we are actually the descendants of the original Martians. Now, as crazy as it may sound, I mean, it's, if you look at the time scale, that's much greater. You can, and even NASA now is starting to leak out that, hey, there might have been water on Mars. And we think now they finally admitted that there's water on Mars. Now they're, going, they're taking it a step further. Well, you know, there were, there were oceans on, on the surface of Mars. And, um, and, and, and definitely, if you look at what the rovers are driving over and photographing, there's actually fossil evidence on the surface of Mars that show that there was more there than just dust clouds and red sand. So could we be actually getting ready to try to return home to, to reignite that planet? Because somebody once said, one of the people that said they had been to Mars said that the sky was actually blue there. So I'm wondering if, if over 
hundreds of thousands, millions of years, humanity as a whole has hopscotched between the two planets, wearing one out, tiring it out, leaving it, but staying in close proximity. And then as we destroy the planet that we are inhabiting, the other one kind of comes back to life and we transport ourselves back to that one to start the whole the whole cycle over again. Cycle in motion again. You know, it could be there's this Russian, there's this interesting case of a Russian boy called Barishka. And I think the only interview ever done by a Western journalist was Bill Ryan and Carrie Cassidy. They actually flew over to talk to him and interview him. And he has these vivid memories of being, of living on Mars and being part of a society that was very warlike. Now, the, the, you know, the evidence of the warlike civilization on Mars um, and and if we look at our civilization here on Earth, I mean, what are we? We're always in war, always at war with one another all the time, everywhere on the planet. I mean, maybe there's no world war going on right now, but there's more little wars going on. There's more money being spent now on on weapon manufacture and maintenance of a war machinery on the planet than there ever has in, in all of history. So we're very warlike uh, people. So And, and, and then there's... Um, John Brandenburg, who's a, a physicist who worked with NASA and was working on the uh, Clementine Project, and he's an astrophysicist, and he came out and he found out that there are traces in the atmosphere of um, xenon-128 in uh, in Mars's atmosphere that represent only one thing because they're very unique. All the planets on our in our solar system have very similar consistency in terms of elements. But this one element, xenon-128, only seems to occur in one instance, and that's whenever there's been nuclear atomic detonation. Um, and he makes a very, very solid case for the fact that what took place on Mars, and he says it probably may have happened already a million years ago. I mean, it's hard to tell with the time scales, but the fact is that the xenon-128 that they found, the, uh, the atmosphere of Mars, only began to, there's only one other place in the entire solar system where that occurs. And that's in the Earth's atmosphere, and not until we began detonating atomic bombs in our atmosphere as well. So, um, and another thing that took place, um, that takes place when people test atomic bombs on Earth, a lot of times they test them in barren desert regions. And what happens is that directly below the detonation, a very strange phenomenon happens. A sheet of glass is formed, and it's, called, it's a very specific glass. It's called trinitite. And this kind of trinitite glass is formed with these extreme heat radiation blasts. Well, guess what? There's another planet in our solar system that has trinitite. And guess which one that is? Mars. <laughs> exactly. And it's interesting that the two areas that he found the highest concentration of uh, xenon-128 hovering in the atmosphere and also on the surf, uh, have on the surface trinitite are the areas where the face on Mars, uh, the, the, what they call the Sidonia Plateau, and another area called Galaxia's Chaos, where both of those regions are, is very fascinating, because if you look at the geophysical structure of the land masses, there's even been papers done by scientists on the location and, and the, and the um, exact positioning of certain geographical monuments, uh, like, uh, let's see, Mar um uh, what do they say that in English? Now I'm starting to lose my English. Um, just like <laughs> landmarks, certain landmarks that appear to be unnatural, and they began to do like measurements on those landmarks. They found a direct correlation to uh, a message that may have been left behind 
by that civilization to signal a future civilization that there really was intelligent life on the surface, and this is, this is the proof of it. Now, we've done that on Earth as well. I mean, this is something that even Gauss proposed in the 1920s when they were trying to take forested areas of Siberia and, and, and carve out certain structures so that people from the moon, which they thought there may be a civilization on back in the 20s, could actually see and recognize on the surface of the Earth that there's an intelligent species there based on those landmarks. So is, is there a connection between Mars and the moon and the Earth as... They're similar structures? Well, there's the connection that essentially you have the, the pyramids mm-hmm. that, that appear on all these bodies. And you have the, I mean, there's a lot of mythological references in Earth's language. Like they, there's a very, there's, there's often, there's a mythological god, for example, called Marduk. And Marduk. Right. Marduk goes back, you know, even some people say that Marduk may be related to Enki um, and, um, and, and back to the early days of the, of the Egyptian mythology. Uh, and he was considered to be the ruler of Mars and Earth. And there's, um, there's like a Nubian legend um, about a city called Meru, where there, there were pyramids that were built by red men. And then there's a Tibetan legend about the destruction of the land of the seven cities. And these are all embedded into the Mahabharata again, which is the Indian, sort of like the Indian Bible, if you might want to call it, for lack of better words. It's the historical <laughs> record of the spiritual story of Rama. And, uh, and, and they talk about, and, and they talk in the New Text about the seven Rishi cities. So was the Tibetan legend about the land of seven cities related to the seven Rishi cities? And in those ancient texts, they talk about people that had flying machines, flying machines, and they actually had a name for them, and they're called vimanas. And uh, so these vimanas are, again, found in the text of the Mahabharata. They even have blueprints for, Mahabhara- for, for, for um, vimanas, and they have detailed descriptions of how to build them, which are you know, levels of science magnitudes above what really should have been existing at a time back thousands and thousands of years ago when we were apparently still using copper and, and, and trying to, you know, you know, hammer out stones to build pyramids as slaves. I mean, it just, it doesn't add up. It just, there's all these ancient um, mythologies and there's, there's Sanskrit texts that describe a Vimana battle that took place on the moon. And in our film, if you've watched it, you know that scene where we show the Mona Lisa, which is that, you know, the Apollo, this, this controversial Apollo 20 mission, which apparently never took place, uh, where, in fact, what happened was this, an archaeological exploration to try and recover what they'd found on the dark side of the moon, which was this massive spaceship with, which actually had surviving uh, technology and surviving beings. In this case, it was this being they called the Mona Lisa, which were stuck in stasis, frozen in time. Were, were these creatures or were these people uh, that are our descent or like our ancestors, were they the ones that the, the Mahabharata is talking about in the Sanskrit texts? Um, is this, wow. you know, what's going on? Like even the, Mohenja, uh, the Mohenjo, Mohenjo-Daro in Pakistan, they talk about um, excavations in these Rishi cities where they found skeletons in the streets that were holding hands as if some great doom just, you know, suddenly whammed them out of the sky. And there's like clumps of glass that they found on the streets. And they've now found that these globs were actually clay pots 
that melted under the intense heat. So these battles that took place apparently on, you know, in these that are actually documented in these historical records, they may actually be factual accounts of this ancient Martian, let's say, you know, ancestry that we have that came to Earth and maybe they battled what was on Earth and maybe those people or those creatures or those ETs that were on Earth were actually reptilians. We don't know. So they're, they're, it's interesting because all of these things are they're surfacing now and they're still being called crazy conspiracy theories. But I, I know that in a matter of time, what's now being debunked or being you know vehemently attacked and ridiculed by scientists is one day going to be accepted as bona fide fact when we're brave enough to accept that our historical picture is super simplified and that we've been held for stupid and dumb. Frank, you mentioned uh, uh, Tesla had that observation of this little uh, glimmer of light from uh, Mars. Um, what is the Vatican's uh, observatory seeing when, when they uh, put, put their scientists uh, to the uh, telescopes and you know, doing their investigations? Well, one of the things that we uh, we were looking to research during the course of making of Packing for Mars was scenarios which would cause an elite group to feel it necessary to set up a colony on Mars in the altruistic sense of, Hey, we need to save the human genome, you know, because alternative three uh, talks about the three alternatives that they were trying to invent uh, or to, to come up with to save the humans from what they thought was impending doom due to climate change and overpopulation back in the, you know, 40 years ago. But uh, what would there be now in our current age that would be an indication that something cataclysmic was about to hit the earth, which would forever or, you know, alter life or wipe out civilization as we know it. And we heard a lot about planet X. And so we were very intrigued to come across the Italian journalist, Lucas Cantamburlo, who actually had been directly in touch and had been given information from a whistleblower Jesuit who had been involved in the, Vatican's own secret space program in which he documents that they actually have discovered planet X and they actually are very, very interested in observing our skies and they have telescope systems set up pointed from the South Pole and from the North Pole in directions, of course, that we, that most amateur astronomers aren't able to peer into because most, let's face it, most of us are located in the mid latitudes of the globe. So we're only looking at a certain, um, in a certain direction into the heavens. We can't see a 360-degree view off the top of our planet or the bottom of our planet very well. And that apparently is what the Vatican is doing. And it's very interesting because, you know, if you, you've probably noticed this amazing secrecy around what's happening in Antarctica. Every time someone, like if you, if you just, you, like you and I couldn't just charter a plane and cruise down to the Antarctica land and, and check it out. We'd right. be intercepted. We'd be arrested, and we'd be promptly escorted, if not fined or thrown in jail, from the continent. And you have to ask yourself, why? I mean, wh- what is the big deal? And the big deal that we're told officially is that 
oh, it's the pristine climate. You know, we need to preserve the pristine climate of Antarctica. We're, we're going to pollute it. We could be bringing bacteria and blah, blah, blah there and et cetera. They give us this altruistic thing and they've got these research stations set up down there. It's a global, you know, a global um, and in all world, all areas of the world is a conflict among nations. But only in Antarctica are we all friends. And there we're all working together to save the, you know, the planet and the climate and protect Antarctica as the last resource. But it's a little bit ridiculous to think how much they actually, how much trouble they actually go to to keep people away from that continent. I mean, why? We even have a, a friend who's an extreme sport athlete who wanted to, uh, you know, he wanted to get a sponsor to to land um, on the perimeter of the shore and and run as an extreme sport ultra runner to the center of the, like to the South pole by himself. And um, he couldn't get any sponsors. So he got some rogue uh, Russian pilot to agree for a lesser amount of money to under the radar, fly him in, drop him off and take off. And he actually managed it. And he ran to the, he ran and set a new world record from the edge of the ice to the center of the of the South Pole in 28 days single-handedly and filmed the whole thing, took geomagnetic uh, readings and geo, GPS readings so he could prove where he'd been. And as soon as he showed up, <laughs> they didn't celebrate his arrival. They quickly arrested him. They threatened him and with jail time, the CIA, and he was greeted by CIA that were very, <laughs> very upset with the fact that he took it upon himself to run, you know, single-handed. He might have seen something after all, right? So uh, the Vatican is is down there, and the Vatican is filming. The Vatican, according to what, what Lucas uh, Scanton Burlo is telling us in the, the film, is they actually discovered this body because of the Pioneer 10 mission that happened much earlier. And, and specifically, the Pioneer 10 mission, if, you, if you're into astronomy and, and rocketry, you know that... Uh, based on you know, calculations, they basically, considering the amount of emptiness in the vacuum around us, they can calculate very precisely how they're going to send a probe into space and for how long it's going to be alive and how much time they have to get information back from it before it either vanishes, disintegrates, or whatever. But in the case of Pioneer 10, they had a very anomalous thing happen. It was, did not go at all as they predicted. It actually veered off course, and there was no explanation for it. The only explanation for its veering off course could be the approach or the influence of another body, electrical, magnetical influence so large that they, hadn't, that they didn't even know it was out there. And that's what set them um, on, on their own program of sending a probe into deep space with the help of uh, Lockheed Martin. They developed plasma-type technology already back in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, and they sent a probe out there and they actually followed um, the evidence that they discovered through Pioneer 10, and they found this planet, the planet, I guess you'd say it's Planet X or Nibiru or whatever you want to call it. And they were very, very interested in it because the Vatican, of course, wants to keep tabs on cataclysmic events that might come to Earth because they have to make it work into their, you know, their, their religious dogma, into their doctrines to be able to you know, not lose their, their, their following to, to some approaching body where everyone loses faith. So they were very, very interested in what happens. And they were the ones to actually discover Planet X and photograph it. And we show pictures of that uh, body that they found and photographed in Packing for Mars. It, 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 Frank, for 
the this movie, it, you have you know, so many uh, commentators that you know our our listeners have heard on uh, you know, multiple uh, networks. Uh, you know, Barbara may have had some of them as guests. Uh, I've spoken to. Uh, you know, a few of the commentators as well, but you, you have you know, very many you know, well-known people presenting their uh, perspectives on the subject. You know, you're going all around the world uh, uh, filming as well. You, you, you it. it, it Packing for Mars isn't just, um, you know, like someone uh, just sitting in a ivory tower making their uh, uh, hypothesis uh, known. Uh, you know, you're interacting with a, a wide variety of people. Can can you tell us about the, you know, what it's like working with? Uh, so many uh, people from various backgrounds. You know, what are their observations contributing to what you're trying to do in packing for Mars? Well, a lot of it is um, it's it's just following. Uh, a, a thread, like following the the dots, connecting the mm-hmm. dots. Mm-hmm. And so when you make a film like this, I was not an expert on Mars in any sense. Um, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an astrophysicist or an academic, but it was interesting. I mean, I'm interested in those subjects and I'm, I'm you know, I've, I've, I consider myself to be fairly well informed in terms of the state of the art of certain yeah, areas of science, let's say. And so I think, you know, you need kind of a foundation of healthy uh, optimism and healthy skepticism, sort of a, a bit of both. And balance. Yeah, a balance. Because uh, one of the things that really irritated us in a lot of films is like documentary type films tend to get a protagonist and, and then they get or a couple of them, and then they get a couple of um, people to gang up on them, you know, so they get them to tell their story and then someone comes along smart ass and sorry, (laughs) tries to, tries to debunk it. And we didn't really want to make that kind of a film. This was kind of a film that would explore the hypothesis from the perspective of various, of various people without pitting them against each other, without, without telling one another, you know, we, we didn't really, share the uh, you know who we were filming next with all of the protagonists because in some cases as we found in the ufo community there's uh there's a lot of rivalry going on and there's a lot of antagonism going on and neither tanya maidenford or myself are really in that club like we don't we don't consider ourselves like hardcore ufologists or or what i know bent on proving some theory but we are definitely interested in UFOs and ufology, and Tanya Maidenford has made quite some of the landmark films with Jose Escamilla on UFOs and, 
and uh, NASA and the moon and stuff like that. So it's, it's more about kind of allowing each person to express their experience. Um, and then later, when you're in the editing floor, you know, you don't go out blindly. You, of course, you've got your questions and you're interested and you need to know a little, about, a little bit about each person that you go to interview because you want to be able to help them uh, release what is in some case, you know, really hidden or buried information that they don't feel comfortable sharing with a lot of people. So you, you, it's, it's about really like we're all brothers and sisters in the world, you know, so there's no reason for anybody to feel like um, you're coming there to suck information or energy from them so that you can manipulate it in the future. It's about finding the nuggets and what they have and even though many of the people in the film don't necessarily know each other or necessarily like each other in some cases, or maybe they liked each other for a while and now they hate each other and now they like each other again, it's constantly fluctuating. But what's interesting is regardless of how different they are and whether or not they like each other, it's amazing how much they harmonize together as a team to represent this picture that we've we put together this picture where you're looking at it, and, you know, although we don't bat you over the head and say, this is what's going on and you must believe this. We never really want to go that way. Uh, we, we do uh, present the evidence as we found it. And we tie together some of those strings and let you, the viewer, kind of figure out whether it resonates with you or not. Because a lot of these things are, they're going back to, in some cases, like Duncan Finian was involved in MK Ultra, And he was... If you know anything about MK Ultra and Miranda Kelly, she was in, the, you know, the two of them, they were like an MK Ultra, if you could call it, they, they hate it when I use this term super soldier because they, they're, they've broken out of the thing now and they're working their way through the information of what they're uncovering in deep, buried uh, or suppressed or, um, you know, violently um, buried information in them about what they were involved in. So they don't like to really call it super soldier, but that's the, the popular Hollywood term, super soldier, meaning an enhanced or a soldier working for the military with enhancements. Some of them are physical enhancements. Some of them are mental enhancements. In the case of Duncan and Miranda, they dig up some very, very profound experiences and memories that they had being in this MK Ultra uh, program, which was very diverse. And in their particular case, it had to do with being... Um, on missions that led Duncan to pilot aircraft and spaceships to Mars. And he never told anybody about that until, you know, thanks to Tanya Maidenford, who got to know him earlier uh, because of the trust in the relationship, he was willing to talk about that information with us on camera. So it's very important for us as documentarians not to judge that information, but just to kind of pull that information together and present it as professionally and, and tastefully as possible so that we can put it up against what someone like Andrew Bushago, who was one of the first people that I wanted to go see, um, was telling, was talking about. Because Andrew Bushago was also one of the early people that talked about Mars experiences, which do not correlate to anything, you know, we're learning in NASA or science or anything around us. Did you want to say something, it Barbara? Feels, yeah, it feels very much like this film... <clears throat> It feels like you are seeding the consciousness of humanity for the potential that the destiny of mankind has before it. So you, you've scattered the seeds, and it'll hit everybody differently, but you planted something in the consciousness of anybody that sees this film 
of the potential <laughs> and perhaps the memories of of what yes. they re- they have inside of them that they haven't gotten to the point of remembering yet. Absolutely, that's that's what's going on. We're even being approached by people um, afterward that are you know they're saying, "Look, you've touched a nerve." I mean, one one guy was. Uh, was like he worked as a consultant for the U.S. Patent Office, and he he said, like, you know, you've basically you've hit a nerve with me because I've been talking to my own off-the-record whistleblower who has invented things and been involved in a program developing technology to support the bases that were built on for the Mars settlement, which has been there as back as the 1970s, you know, and uh, and so it's like. These kind of people, the nice thing about making a film like this is that you do get, you sort of unlock um, certain things. And people approached us after we made the film and, and gave us even more tantalizing uh, bits of information that support what we're talking about. Even, even what's happening with the whole Corey Good and Jordan Sather and all these, this whole new wave of millennials that are putting, pushing for disclosure. It's great because what they're putting out in their films is only further supporting what uh, what we dove into when we started making this film, actually, you know, when you look back, we started making this film in 2010. So we're looking almost on, we're going back almost like nine years now that the film that we started making the film. And nine years ago, there was very, very little information going on about this premise, about this. I mean, there was the disclosure movement, but it more or less been kept under wraps. I mean, Stephen Bassett and, and, uh, and, um, uh, and and Stephen Greer were, were were pushing for disclosure in 2001, but it it pretty much like vanished because nobody was talking about it. So there's a new wave of stuff coming out now, which is refreshing uh, the let's just say the curiosity of of society. My my only fear is that you know some of the powers that be, let's say these elitists, these globalists, um, are trying to stem the tide. And they're doing whatever they can to control the spin. So one, one thing we always have to be careful about is that the information that's coming out, um, some of it can be very, very sensationalized. And much of it, of course, is not substantiated. So we have to use our own BS filters, our discernment, to be able to find out how much of this information resonates with me, how much of, the, is, of this information actually might have a basis in, in factual evidence, that I can find and how much of it is just, you know, the whistleblowers that have emerged from these programs with nothing but this, uh, the shirt on their backs that have no evidence to prove, but are telling their story because they need to get the story out there. And so we can compare notes between whistleblowers to see where the overlaps are. Okay. And, um, Frank, what science, uh, would need to be uh, taken to Mars to uh, make the colonization work, like uh, uh, building an energy plant, or you know, would there be uh, solar power, wind power, uh, you know? Obviously, what uh, water wouldn't work uh, well uh, what, now. But how, how you know, you know what, what what would be the uh, 
like to have some kind of energy plant up and running to make this happen? I believe that a lot of the activity that's taking place on Mars now is underground. And I, yes, from what, you know, and from what whistleblowers have come to us talking about, they're talking about underground. They're talking about settlements that are built along the walls of ancient volcanic tunnels under the surface of the planet. So obviously the surface of the planet has been scarred. The surface of the planet has gone through cataclysmic, um, you know, some cataclysm that, that basically made it, let's say, not maybe not totally uninhabitable, but let's you know we can't compare it to what we have on Earth. Obviously, now there might be beings on the surface that are adapted. I mean, it's amazing how creatures can adapt. Even we have creatures, you know, in the depths of our oceans, which we know very little about, that can live without oxygen, without light, without warmth. You know, for for you know millions of years. And survive. We're only just now discovering those creatures. So there could very well be lots of creatures, let's say, or animals or wildlife on the surface of Mars. And I think Andrew Bishago was earnestly trying to push a lot of evidence out there in terms of what there might be now on the surface in terms of these animals. Uh, And his own experiences on the surface describe some kind of creatures that um, uh, that are actually predatory on the surface of Mars, but from from our understanding, I think most of the inform, most of the activity now taking place is under the surface, and there's a large uh, body of evidence also to support that there's an under the surface of Earth colony or civilization as well. Now, whether that means the Earth is hollow or not, I'm not sure. This is something that we're definitely very interested in. There's a lot of theories about the hollow Earth. Uh, but I think probably the most realistic or the most viable to me at the moment is that there's not necessarily a hollow earth with the sun in the center, but that there's these giant caverns, humongous caverns that are city size, metropolis size, that actually support millions of people that do exist. Um, and there's traces of evidence of those really, really existing. And if we're to take the, the, uh, the, the, day, the, the, the diaries of this German author seriously, about his experiences. Now he's amassed six books on it. And, you know, it's like you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's just, you know, pretty crazy about this inner earth civilization. So for me, it's no far stretch to think that there's an inner earth civilization on the surface of, on Mars as well. The technology that they use, I mean, we're not talking about the kind of technology that we're used to here on earth. We think that we need oil we need to burn carbon and fossil fuels to generate electricity, or we need to burn nuclear rods or uranium, refined mm-hmm. uranium. We need solar or wind, blah, blah, blah. None of these things are, are, are going to are a long-term solution. And any advanced civilization, if we're to believe that they do exist and have been visiting Earth, they're not using those technologies. They're using technologies that are much more centered around you know, dark matter, perhaps, or magnetics. Uh, or they're just they're dealing with um, you know on, on a subatomic level, harnessing the po- power of things that that we just don't understand in our physics. Our laws of physics aren't aren't willing to go there. We're just you know we're still grappling with quantum physics. Um, but fact is, you know, most of these sciences that they're working with are off the books, and they're not being discussed in the science and the universities that people are are going to school in in the in the mainstream and the let's say, surface world, if you want to call it that, of Earth. 
you know, that, uh, you know, if there are uh, caves in the uh, hollow earth, uh, maybe Barbara can move uh, there to get away from uh, the bears. Yeah. (laughs) But, 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 you know, you do bring up a, uh, you know, interesting point with, with the, uh, you know, if Mars has the hollow, you know, uh, the hollow Mars theory, uh, you you do cover that in your, uh, you know, what you're talking about with, uh, your documentary with uh, Dr. Michael Sala, uh, where something seems to be going on in Antarctica. Uh, you know, the Argatha uh, yes. concept. It's just, you know, earlier in the show, you know, we spoke a little bit about, you know, the connection between Mars and Earth and, you know, uh, with the structures, but now we have almost like the same uh, uh, exterior and in- interior of the planets. Uh, I, I just thought that was interesting. Well, it makes sense to me because we're finding you know the structures of the, of the monuments, the Sphinx or the face or the pyramids and Elysium quadrant, you know, it's like these things are all evidence on the surface of a culture which seem to correlate to the cultures on both planets. So if we have an inner earth and we have a civilization on the inner earth and, and, you know, there's a lot of people and Bill Tompkins is one of the people saying that the moon is hollow. And when the uh, NASA program and the Apollo program was taking place, they were, they ran experiments where they hurled the, uh, you know, the lunar module back onto the surface to see what would happen if it collided on the surface and what they were found was shocking. They actually found when they collided their lunar module into the surface of the moon, that there was a bell sound ringing for over an hour that they registered. So that could only be happening if, if one thing was true and that would be that the, that moon might actually be hollow. Yeah. And, and you know, you know, heard, heard that word, you know, the, uh, um, uh, Asteroid craters are all the same depth. You know, like they only go down so. F- it's a uniform pattern that they only go down so far. So it, it it just seems like there might be a little bit more evidence there that the moon is hollow. You know, they're just the, the asteroids are making an impact to the exterior, but. Well, yeah, there's it, just something that just keeps it from going in any deeper. Right. Right. So, I mean, the thing is, the moon is a weird thing because the moon shouldn't really be that close to the earth. It's too big for a body that size to be that close to the earth without colliding into it. Wouldn't make sense if it was a solid body. There's, there's like all these different points about the moon that you could list off of why it just doesn't make any sense for it to be there. For example, it's got a perfectly round orbit and no bodies that are anywhere else in the the, um, known solar system do planets that catch bodies like asteroids that turn into moons have anything but an elliptical orbit because basically it's an uneven orbit because it's impossible for for this orbit to be perfectly round. And so it's something, and the moon always faces the same side to the earth. 
So it's just there's and there's things like this that you have to ask yourself, you know, what's that all about? And there's legends that talk about the moon. Um, we were talking about Tihuanaco before in Bolivia, mm-hmm. and they talk about a time there, there. There was a civilization that existed there 12,000 years ago, estimated, and they uh, they basically left symbols on the wall of the Kalas Asaya Temple that say essentially talk about a time before the moon. And and their calendar was was the first time it was actually decoded was in, wasn't until the 1950s. And in the calendar, they talk about a time where there first was a smaller moon that circled around the Earth. And then around 11,000 to 13,000 years ago, the big moon came, the one that we know now. And their calendar even describes a solar year where there was a record amount of lunar eclipses, which could only take place if there was more than one moon circling the Earth. So, yeah, and then there's like, it goes further, right? There's like, there's, an, a, there's a Zulu tribe which believes that the moon is hollow. And they have a legend that talks about two brothers that came uh, to Earth and brought the moon with them called Wawani and Mapanku. And they, these two beings had skin like fish. They had scales on their skin. And it's interesting because, as you know, we also worked with Klaus Donna on the Klaus Donna Chronicles that talks mm-hmm. about artifacts around the world that are found that don't make any sense in terms of, you know, they're called out-of-place artifacts because they don't fit the modern archaeological orthodoxy of what history is all about. And one of those artifacts that Klaus shows in the Chronicles, it's like, an, it's like a being that looks like um, it has skin, scaly skin, a huge creature, like a, a giant sitting on the back of an elephant, riding an elephant. And these go back, these are dated back around that time of, you know, and there, there's another interesting story in the, it's the their story, the, the Zulu story that is, is very similar to the story um, that's come, that comes out of Mesopotamia and the Sumerians, where they talk about two brothers, Enlil and Enki, that uh, basically were these two brothers that came to earth. And, um, and the whole thing about the fish skin, you can see it in Babylonian pictures. There's remnants of like fish-like uh, beings or fish-like cloaks that they're wearing. And you can even actually find pictures of the Pope now, if you look at the Roman Catholic Church, where the Pope is wearing a cap. And if you look at that cap very closely, it's actually not a cap. It's the head of a fish with scales and its mouth open. I mean, it just, it's interesting. We, had, we met... Uh, Another filmmaker in Bavaria who turned us on to a Bolivian, uh, a Spanish artist who went to Bolivian on vacation, on vacation, and he was, you know, sitting around bored, and he went for a stroll in the backwoods, wanted to do some painting, and this UFO lands, and the UFO, this this like window-like thing opens, and he sees these two people standing there looking at him, and they look like fish two fish people <laughs> staring at him. And he, after, ever since that event, he's become obsessed with painting them. He's, he was this world famous artist out of Spain, like totally, you know, well-known, totally conservative. And suddenly he has this experience in Bolivia and he comes back and he does nothing else now except paint these fish people and make sculpture of these fish people on the UFO that he saw. Okay. Well, then, you know, there's another 
animal to add to our animal imagery for today's show. But there's right. uh, uh, yeah, that's a nice uh, lead in for uh, you know uh, to plug uh, Laird Scranton being on uh, Barbara's Monday show uh, what next month and you know he has a book on. Uh, the Dogon tribe and you know, the fish people, uh, uh, and the um, oh, oh, was it the uh, was it uh, Robert uh, Temple's book, uh, the serious uh, mystery or some, something like that, uh, has uh, uh, references to. The uh, fish gods appearing to the Dogon uh, people. Right. So, uh, that, that's uh, you know, just like one of these patterns. You know, they were very much aware of uh, in like long before telescopes were invented that there were right. moons circling some, yes. uh, some planet. It's like, well, yes. how'd they know they that? Had, they knew, exactly. They knew the orbits of these moons, of these planets, which are so, we hadn't even developed, invented telescopes yet. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, we have a Dogon initiate in the film, too, Big Bai, and he talks about, um, well, he talks about something else. I mean, we had him, I got into a very interesting discussion about with him about why do people why, when people are confronted with evidence to the contrary of what they know, proving that um, you know reality is, is is much deeper and broader, and that the picture of reality they have is smaller, and that what they've been taught isn't necessarily true, when they're confronted with new facts, why do they still stick to their to the to the past? Why do they not break free of the chains of the limited thinking? And he talks about a, a word that the Dogon have for that called zenimti. Remember that part of the film? Mm-hmm. And Zanimti basically is when people, you know, he, he describes it in, in terms of an analogy of someone who's sitting in the mud and you walk by them and you say, hey, dude, you're sitting in the mud. You know, you ought to get up uh, out of the mud. You know, let me help you. And not only would the person not get up out of the mud or want to be helped getting out of the mud, they'll come up with reasons why they need to stay sitting in the mud. And mm-hmm. it, it's a very interesting analogy to how people in society are that are not willing to go down the rabbit hole and look at this kind of information that we're presenting in Packing for Mars or that we're presenting in the Klaus Donner Chronicles. Um, I think it's, it challenges people's worldview so much that because they're used to, you know, people are, are, are creatures of stability. That society is, is a... Is, um, you know, it's a thing of habit. We want things to be stable. We want things to be predictable. And, and you know, quite honestly, let's face it, most people aren't cut out for conspiracy theories and following the, the road down the rabbit hole to see where this all leads. You know, I think we're not really made for this kind of stuff. But why has it emerged? Well, you know, it's emerged because people are taking a look at society now and what's going on in the world, and they're really worried, maybe. A lot of them are worried about where this is all headed. Uh, in fact, I think most people that are still unconscious, their form of expressing it is just discontent and feeling that something's not quite right. They don't know how to explain what it is. You know, it's like uh, Richard Dolan talks about. 
he says, like, there's this need to know the truth. You know, people feel, they feel it when it's something is just not right. And if we're looking at the world picture now, you know, it's, it's actually really crazy what's going on in the world right now. And I think in, in, in just in the last six months to a year, we've come across even more reason to, 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 to really consider why is there a breakaway civilization and why would there be a colony on Mars? Like, what for? Why not just stay here? We've got it much nicer on Earth. We don't need Mars. <clears throat> We've probably got things on Earth we haven't found that we could still explore, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Or, you know, why don't we solve our problems here on Earth first before we go to another planet and screw it up there? So, and now if you're looking at, the people are just feeling this stuff is going on. And what's happening right now? What are the two, what are the three, I'd say the three pivotal issues facing us now, which might cause a breakaway civilization to, to have justification or to justify their need to have a colony on Mars, which we didn't have a chance to explore packing for Mars yet. We only touch upon, upon them a little bit are now beginning to bloom or come, let's, let's just say poke their heads out of the soil. If we're looking at the analogy of plants and that is artificial intelligence and the implications on society. The next thing that's coming is called smart meters. And if you've done any research on smart meters, basically what smart meters are is your utility company participating in a government-sponsored cash grab to convert all of the analog electrical meters into digital, corresponding digital uh, electric meters, all under the premise of global warming. That, you know, my God, you know, we're causing greenhouse gas. We have to cut down on our energy resources. We have to be smarter with how we use our energy. Uh, and instead of admitting that we have these amazing technologies that we could use to revolutionize the world and, you know, uh, we don't need oil anymore. We don't need uh, to burn any fossil fuels. We don't need any nuclear. We don't need any of this stuff. We could be using this, harnessing this completely different form of energy that's pollution-free. No, what are we told? We the population have to tighten our buckles and we have to, you know, buckle up and we have to face the hard times of, you know, reducing our use of carbon in the world. And one of those things is using smart meters and the smart meters are there to, you know, to, to, to make the whole communication of all, of all the uh, electrical devices and all the houses uh, and analytically, you know, um, uh, yeah, like studied so that they can say, well, this person's using this much and this person shouldn't be doing that. And pretty, it's a total invasion of our privacy. And it works hand in hand with the third element that's coming at us, and that's 5G. And all of these things have been proven to be damaging, so damaging to the subtle organized energy field of the human body. The, bios, the biological makeup of a, of a human body is not just physical like blood cells, but it's electrical. We are electrical beings. And in a lot of ways, there's a lot of evidence now coming out that we're actually reining our bodies into existence through this subtle organized energy field and that our physical bodies are the end result of this consciousness, which is, which is reining into physical reality, our bodies and our thoughts and our ideas and our actions. Now, these new technologies like smart meters are causing dirty electricity, polluting the environment, Tests are showing that they totally disrupt our cellular structure. They damage our DNA. The 5G thing is coming in on a microwave level. That's never happened before. Uh, it's being pushed without any kind of public scrutiny. We're being told it's the next greatest, coolest thing. 
the new generation of kids playing games and watching movies and hearing endless music on their iPhones want it because it's better, it's faster, it's quicker. All of it is in the, you know, you have to ask yourself, why? Because somehow we survived with all of this before. Why now suddenly this, this incredible push to have this technology pushed on us earthlings uh, when it's obviously causing people to get cancer, causing people to have brain tumors, causing people to get sick? Where is this leading? Well, it goes back to that Georgia Guidestones analogy that I brought up earlier in our show. Mm -hmm. Is there really an agenda to depopulate the earth? And is this really not just a clever way to to slyly, underhandedly bring in technology that actually facilitates the goal of some someone that wants to do this? And and what would you know, because this energy and this technology is so all penetrating, there will be no place to hide unless you want to climb into a mountain cave and live in a cave for the next 10 years. So you have to ask yourself, on, in terms of Alternative 3 and the premise of packing for Mars, of setting up a Mars colony, well, I mean, first thing people often say to me is, well, if the elitists are really behind this, well, why would they do it? Because they're going to be killing themselves as well. Well, maybe not. Maybe the elite do have the escape hatch, and maybe the escape hatch is a colony on the moon or the inside of the moon or a colony on the inside of, of Mars. Hmm. That makes sense. And you know, t- so, who, who wh- what's the role of those of us who are left behind just to serve the whims of the uh, elite family? If some of them stay here on Earth, and you know, the main parts of the family go to Mars. Well, I think it's, let's say that that scenario I just painted is actually true or viable. Mm -hmm. They would be, um, they may already be on Mars waiting it out. And what's here is not necessarily them, but, you know, to take it a bit further here, maybe this is going to freak out some of your viewers, but there's, there's a lot of evidence that there's actually cloning taking place. And that what we have here um, on Earth left behind to rule or regulate or impose the agenda are really just the avatar clones of the elitists who are safely tucked away outside of the influence of the pollutants that they've set in motion here on the planet Earth. And and as you talk about that, you've got the frack trucks driving by the front of my house. (laughs) There you go. Okay, so um, you know, I, 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 you know, you were talking about the cognitive dissidence that uh, you know, pe- right. people have when they're confronted, their preconce- preconceived notions are confronted with uh, facts. Um, and the Georgia Guidestones are, you know, one really good example of yeah or the Denver uh, airport yeah yeah just uh you know that, that there is uh in, in a uh, an elite group of people who are uh you know determined to uh depopulate the planet and you know those who survive are you know, 
going to be slaves. You know, just uh, history is just going to uh, repeat itself. But you know, you know, we also had uh, on uh, last Monday's show, Barbara and Greg Little had a, a great discussion about uh, Atlantis. Uh, it, that was it was just a captivating uh, discussion. And that you know, Klaus uh, covers that, that topic as as well. Uh, you know, where do you think it was located? You know, what was going on there? It, you know, just according to some of Greg's research, it sound sound like you know, there's an elite group of people living on either the spaceship that uh, crash-landed in the Atlantic, or there's just kind of looking at this theme of elites that have always been present on Earth. Well, it seems like Antarctica was not necessarily always located in the latitude that it's at now. That there actually is times where the earth not just had a magnetic pole shift, but actually had a physical shift in the poles. And I mean, there's lots of uh, cases where this happens uh, and it's quite conceivable that it's happened on earth as well. It stretches probably back to, I mean, you know, Sala talks about it in terms of Corey good. And that's 60,000 years ago. You know, who's to put a number on it? It's hard to say, but I think it's conceivable that Antarctica was located somewhere p- completely differently. And the CIA in 1984 began doing remote viewing on the surface of Mars. And some of that information was released um, recently. And we found it, and Michael had it in his presentation that we filmed as well, which you can see, by the way, on our Real House channel. And that information talks about remote viewers connecting with some civilization on the planet of Mars about one million years ago. And they were describing uh, an urgent situation of having to get off the surface of the planet to survive. And they talked about the solution being the destination where they were going being a place that was volcanic and tropical and uh, and it described very much what actually the surface of Antarctica is like. Now, Antarctica at current, at present, is buried under a mile of ice, but underneath that ice, there is definitely volcanic activity. There's definitely geysers and thermal activity taking place. Mm-hmm. So what they're describing in this remote viewing done by the CIA confirms that it's possible that, A, the CIA was interested in this yeah, and this ancient Mars civilization, because obviously what they found on the surface of Mars, which they didn't tell us about archaeologically, caused them to be, ever since, obsessed with the history of the planet and Mars. And this would lead us to believe that Antarctica may have actually been settled by these Martians who fled from Mars to escape some fate. Maybe it was war, maybe it was Planet X, you know. It may have been something else. Like we have uh, Jerry Wills talking about it in Packing for Mars in terms of Planet X making a routine passage through our solar system. So it's perihelion 
which is the closest it comes to our sun, actually affecting certain planets in the, in the way it times itself through the solar system. Now, maybe 12 or so thousand years ago, it came through our solar system, and maybe planet Mars was, was inhabited. And maybe it was 12,000 years ago, for all we know, but it basically uh, may have wiped out the surface of the planet then, just much, much as like a massive meteorite would affect Earth's planet. But let's say these Martians came to Earth. Uh, what's interesting is you can find in the legends, they talk about these things, that in the Greek legends they talk about it. You know, they talk about the, in the Bible, they talk about the, um, in Enoch, how the fallen angels came here, the sons of heaven, you know, and they, and they, they mated with the wives of men or the children of men. And they spread all out over the planet. And if you look at what's happening in um, Teotihuacan, you know, where we show the alignment of the, of the pyramid of the sun, the pyramid of the moon, and the pyramid of Kukulkan, which represents Marduk, actually, which is Mars. And the whole plaza is set up like a giant gateway that leads from, from the mini Kukulkan planet along a huge walkway up to the, the pyramid of the moon, which is actually the second largest pyramid. If you, if you lay the orbit, orbital pathways of the planets in our solar system over that um, plaza in Teotihuacan, placing the sun in the position of the sun pyramid of Teotihuacan, only two orbits line up with the positioning of those other two pla- uh, pyramids. The pyramid of the moon lines up with the Earth's orbit, and, and the Kukulkan Marduk pyramid lines up with the, the orbit of, of Mars. So there's evidence right there that that ancient civilization somehow managed to figure out exactly the positioning of the planets orbiting our solar system to place the positions of their pyramids in those places, almost as if symbolically to say the journey of our ancestors came from Mars to the Earth because the road leads from the Kukulkan pyramid to the moon pyramid, which, you know, which some people would say maybe should be renamed to be called the pyramid of the Earth. Even the relation of the size of those pyramids is interesting. There's a, if you look at the relation of the pyramid of the moon to the relation of the pyramid of Kukulkan, you come up with a ratio of 0.562 or 526. And uh, that ratio is, correlates to one other interesting ratio in our solar system. Guess what that might be? If you look at the, at the diameter of the Earth and you compare it to the diameter of Mars, it's the exact same 0.526. Wow. So there is a connection. So there's a connection. So did they come to Antarctica and from Antarctica spread their seeds, so to speak, over and dominated the rest of the planet? There's even evidence that Atlantis may have been Antarctica. There's a lot of evidence about Atlant- ancient Atlantis actually was Antarctica. Now, I believe that Atlantis speaks of what a period an epoch on Earth where maybe Atlantis wasn't just in one location, but that it had several central places. But it's conceivable to me that Antarctica was indeed uh, a very large continent settled by very advanced civilization way back then, and that the civilization of people that lived there had white skin, just like, you know, the Caucasians we, we know in Western civilization. And there's really strange evidence of this white-skinned Caucasian appearing in the strangest places of the earth where it really has no be no like no business 
being in the middle of places where there's really just other total different racial um, genetics going on. So, I mean, there's lots of evidence to support that this, this implant in this, of this civilization took place on a global scale, even had their own global language, as Klaus Donna talks about in the, in the Chronicles, in terms of finding artifacts on stones in South America that have writing on them, which corresponds with the writing found on stones in Africa and in Japan. Oh, that's, that's uh, amazing information. And and how does the, the Perry Reese map fit in with all, all this ancient writing that you just mentioned and uh, Antarctica maybe being right. tropical at one point? Right, exactly. Well, the Perry Reese map is is you know, it's funny because the Perry Reese map is actually a copy um, which some people believe was copied from ancient, far more ancient maps that existed. And what's interesting is that the, um, there was a time when the, the navigators of the, of the Spanish fleet had access to maps which depicted continental bodies which had not yet been discovered down to one sixtieth of a meter, which is equivalent to the today's roadmaps in accuracy. And so, I mean, where did they come up with these maps, right? They, they didn't obviously draw these maps. They haven't even invented longitude at that point for them to be able to accurately depict the placement of continental bodies, which had not yet been discovered. This is in the 14th century. Okay. Like the 14th century. Mm-hmm. So, how do they know that there was a shoreline which correlates to the shoreline of Antarctica off the tip of South America back in the 1400s? It just blows your mind. And it's just, um, it's just, very, it's just very interesting to think that these events and these situations on the planet took place and we have no knowledge about it and it's just completely ridiculed in our world today. Uh, yeah, it, it, it can be uh, ridiculed, but the, the Perry Reese map does seem like it's an accurate uh, d- description of the shoreline, the you know, g- uh, geography, topography of yes. Antarctica. I, 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 I don't, you know, there, there's, you know, the cognitive dissidents appearing again with many people, but, you know, here's uh th- this map from 700 years ago yeah uh, it's uh i i i, I think it's you know, just a fascinating subject and well it just shows you your listeners that there's a lot more to history than is taught in the history books right and yeah uh you know Barbara's going to be covering that Monday with uh, Primo. Michael, yeah, Michael Cremo. Uh, you know, you know, we're you know winding down to like maybe fifteen minutes left or so. But uh, you know, as you know, we uh, do um, look at some of these unexplained e- events. In your Antarctica uh, movie, you're also covering uh, 
Admiral Byrd's expedition, you know, what was going on there? Uh, th- yeah, that still remains very secretive. Definitely, you know, definitely very secretive. Um, you know, what did Michael, Dr. Michael Sulla have to say about that? Well, he's he basically talks about um, a fleet going down to Antarctica, uh, a mission to essentially route out the, um, yeah, I guess the, the, the breakaway faction of Nazis that he claims, or that I guess the people that are part of that whole scenario of how the Nazis, you know, basically connected with reptilians and they went down to Antarctica and the U.S. Navy sent down 5,000 troops, an aircraft carrier and tanks and whatever battalions, and they went down there to route them out of the, uh, of their base. Um, And it's, it's just, um, I mean, I don't. I know. It's for me. From what I've found now, living in Germany and going to research some of this material, maybe with some material that's a little bit more firsthand or closer to it than some of the material that Sala or that some of the others are being putting out there about this connection with um, World War II and Germany. But I'm not sure that their that their theories are really correct, and. You know, the thing about Bird's expedition, there's a paper that was created by um, Colin Summerhays. You know, it was a a Cambridge research paper called Hitler's Antarctic Base, the Myth and Reality. And if if you read that paper, it becomes clear that the Admiral Bird mission down to Antarctica was not necessarily what Sala and people are saying it was. And 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 I think that their paper is pretty credible. But it doesn't necessarily debunk the idea that the Germans discovered something in Antarctica, which led them to be able to lead them to kind of an inner earth, or let's just say another advanced civilization which had settled there or was still settled there. I think, I th- I'm not quite sure. I'm ready, ready to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. I do believe that there's a, there's a faction um, of Germans that broke away. I do not necessarily believe in uh, in fact, I, I definitely don't believe in the idea that the Germans were alive with some evil reptilian race that wanted world domination, because history is now proving itself to be totally different. In fact, what happened is that the same faction which is striving for world domination invaded Germany in the Second World War and crushed probably the last movement to try and, you know, throw out bankers and a world hegemony, uh, which could not be because it would stand in the way of their plan to dominate the planet. And that's exactly what has happened before the world wars and second, since the second world war. So what may have happened is that there may be a faction of Germans that saved their, their bacon by going into the inner earth and they found portals into the inner earth in Antarctica, but they didn't just find them in Antarctica. They found them in other places around the world as well. And that's, um, that's been documented in some very cleverly written um, fictional novels, just as much as the uh, Alternative 3 is a so-called fictional, factual novel. 
There's also some novels that were written by first-hand experiencers during the Second World War that, that describe a totally different scenario that was taking place here in the final days of the Second World War. And I do think that it's quite conceivable that um, a substantial amount of Germans made it into some kind of a inner earth haven. And there is definitely some very questionable uh, experiences that Admiral Byrd talks about, which weren't necessarily during that particular expedition to Antarctica, but may have taken place at other times. And he describes his having encountered during his own research of the Antarctic continent and, and, and uh, in terms of photographing it and, and going over it and looking at it from the air, he describes a very peculiar experience of being uh, disoriented, losing control of the airplane and being escorted by some um, race of people that brought him into, the, into some interior uh, cavern in this area. And they brought him out and they, they discussed things about the, bl- the planet with him. And they had an uncanny German accent when they talked to him. So hmm. I think that there's something to the bird um, story, but I'm not sure. I think maybe the story about this fleet that went down to Antarctica and was, 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 was basically ransacked by advanced UFOs that popped up out of the water and took their fleet down. I think it might be a smokescreen. You know, and but but it's cool. I mean, there's a lot of people that that, that are upset with me for saying that, probably, and uh, because you know they found all kinds of evidence that the Nazis, you know, connected with the reptilians in Tibet and blah blah blah. But I, I'm not willing to to completely abandon, uh, you know, this theory quite yet, and just join the the fold and and go along with this version of history that they're proclaiming. Because I'm learning other aspects of the Second World War and history in Germany that are that are true, which are now coming out, which are which completely contradict the story of told by the victors of the Second World War of what took place. And those people promoting the, the reptilian agenda, for large portions of their story are based on the, fact, the fictional history part, the fake history, if you want to call it, that I'm now basically learning to, to debunk based on factual evidence and not just hearsay. And so, uh, for... Those who um, need to awaken to all this kind of information, uh, and might get a sample of it at you know a little bit of time that, that's left at the Serpent Mound Seed Blessing, uh, as well. Uh, in, in another one of your movies, you, you talk about the. Uh, Geomagnetic storms that can affect brains and yes. a- a- awaken people. Uh, yes. Let's talk a l- little bit about uh, it, your movie Solar Rev- Revolution. Yeah, in Solar Revolution, we work um, with the German biophysicist Dieter Burrs to explore the science behind how cosmic activity taking place and being registered and documented and, and, and measured by NASA and other astrophysicists around the world now based on, you know, cosmic uh, radio waves, um, plasma and X-rays coming at us at unprecedented levels 
is working to stimulate um, the human brain and, you know, in particular the pineal gland, which is responsible in the human body for creating some of the most potent hallucinogenics uh, like, you know, serotonin, which help us in dreams and one in particular called dimethyltryptamine, DMT, which uh, induces people to have um, trance-like out-of-body experiences in which they encounter beings that uh, apparently exist outside on another level, another dimension of reality that DMT helps humans break out of and encounter these beings with. And it's happening to us all over. Like we're being, the people around the planet now that are more sensitive are the first ones to being affected are starting to feel and, and see things and hear things and feel this sort of evolutionary leap coming to humanity because it's been shown in history that humanity has these cycles where there's, where there's certain, it's always related to solar activity. And the film explores just how this current wave of solar activity that's happening, even in the case of where there's very little sunspots to, on, the plan, on the surface of the, of the sun, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no solar activity happening whatsoever. It actually does play a very significant role in how it does, how the sun changes its relationship to earth. And if we look at the sun and the earth and, the, and all of us living together as one holistic system, we're all connected. And historically it's, it can be shown and we show it in solar revolution, how evolutionary leaps in human consciousness always correspond with solar cycles. And right now, the solar cycle that we're going through is directly having a role on how these radiations coming out to us from the center of the galaxy in a place called Sagittarius A, which some people call it a black hole. Other people dispute that there's black holes, but it's undisputable that there's a vortex of energy happening there right now. And this vortex of energy is shooting an unprecedented level of these um, cosmic um, particles and radiations and radio waves at our brain, at our, at our bodies right now. And the fact that the Earth's magnetic fields are weakening, which is documented, means that more of these particles are getting through than probably have in many, many, many years or decades or even centuries. And this is having the effect on us to actually stimulate our pineal glands. And it might be the trigger effect that we need to have the next great evolutionary leap in consciousness that we kind of, you could say, need at this point if we look at what we talked about earlier that we're this warring civilization and we need to make the next evolutionary leap to a higher form of consciousness so that we aren't raping our environment and you know bombing ourselves into the ground and constantly caught up in political and uh, mayhem and and all the stuff that's going all around us maybe we really do need this evolutionary shift and maybe as this organism and the holistic view that's that all of it is connected, and even the Mayas talk about maybe right now we're at the cusp of that big leap, and this event that's taking place, this cosmic radiation that's coming at us, is the trigger for that to happen. That's what that film's about. Okay, I just wonder if the chemtrails are being used to, you know, possibly reverse, you know, the, the effectiveness of this, how the sun and the geomagnetic um, you know, waves uh, affect us. And it's, you know, it might play a role. It might. Yeah. 
No, but I do, I do believe that some of these rays, they pass through everything. They can't be stopped by even chemtrails. Um, it's like, you know, it's like radio waves. They go through, you know, a certain, you know, amount of obstacles. And, and chemtrails may not be enough. I mean, there's just, um, I mean, there's, there's an over-exaggeration a lot of times of the impact that human-made technology can really have on us. Um, and I mean, I just was reading an interesting paper uh, by a German researcher that said that, you know, I mean, I don't necessarily know if I agree with him, but he said that basically HARP has uh, about as much ability to affect our stratosphere and ionosphere through man-made, you know, beaming of energy as about maybe 0.00001% of what's coming at us from the sun and the solar radiation in the cosmos. So, you know, take it all in perspective, but it all adds up, I guess. And there definitely is manipulation going on through of the climate. There definitely is an attempt, let's say, to mm-hmm. manipulate the climate by certain factions of people and chemtrails and all these things added together. I mean, I think worse is the smart meters and the 5G that's coming and AI I think that could have far more of a tidal wave effect on on consciousness and human civilization than, you know, than than atmospheric disturbances probably will ever have in the next 10 years. So I think we need to all wake up collectively and begin studying this information and begin talking to each other. One of the things that we've forgotten to do really is to get together and meet and talk about these things. We're also we're all like virtual now. You know, we're all like, you know, Facebooking and and Facebook is the is the greatest censoring uh, control module ever invented. I mean, people think that it's great to be able to, to, be able to communicate on Facebook, and, and it is. You know, I got to admit, I've made con- connections with some old friends that I never would have found without Facebook. But as soon as I were, if I were to start getting very political with my viewpoints, and if I wanted to start a political revolution or a movement on Facebook, I'd be shut down in a second. I know a person in, in the area here that was just arrested for you know making the wrong comment uh, in Germany because they they said something bad and they just check marked something or smiled so they liked something and they were picked up so it's the perfect spy mechanism for society so we have to get away from Facebook and we have to get back together watch films you know talk about them you know compare notes and and get together and and, and just have the spirit of of um of the collective human mind rather than you know leaning too much on this yeah, this harmful electronic technology around us. Um, you know, speaking of get, getting together to watch films, uh, you know, we're down to about five minutes um, yeah. left. H- how do people view your films? You know, uh, you know, you know, we need to give you some time to plug your website and any oh, other uh, contact information, all the names of your films. Sure. Well, one of the things that uh, that I think we're very excited about is we just been we've just been um, uh, we've just been nominated for uh, a new uh, the New York International Paranormal Film Festival, which is taking place on June sixth, seventh, and eighth. So I think um, it's going to be pretty cool uh, to be. Actually, it's our New York premiere in New York, and uh, we're looking forward to having the film there. So people who want to see Packing for Mars on a screen. They, and that are in New York that might be listening right now should definitely check out that film festival. That's going to be very cool. 
Uh, we also, you know, if they if they can't wait or they want to download it or they want to buy the DVD, we have a website for the film, which is packingformarsmovie.com. And on that, you can get copies of the, of the DVD. You can get direct links to stream the film online. And you can also get the film in both English. And we also made a German dub. So if there's any German listeners out there who want the film in their native language, we went to the trouble of completely dubbing the entire film into Germany. So um, that's where you get that. But we also have, like you said, films about ancient archaeology, forbidden archaeology, or out-of-place artifacts. We produced the one and only ever DVD with Klaus Donner called the Klaus Donner Chronicles. We have that available on our website, the Klaus, which is klausdonnerchronicles.com, and Klaus with K. Maybe you can put that in the links below. And for those people who are interested in the solar activity and how it affects human consciousness, we also have another award-winning documentary, which we put out just before we released Packing from Mars. It's called Solar Revolution. And we have a website for that as well, which is solar-revolution-movie.com. And that uh, website will also allow you to stream or buy a DVD in both German. We also have that one available in French. We also have that obviously in English. So it's available in three languages and you can get all of that stuff on that website. And our website, screenaddiction.com, which is Tanya Maidenford's my production partner, Tony Maidenford's website, which is links to pretty much all the stuff we have, including the, the one day Las Vegas workshop on Antarctica and the secret space program, which we did with Michael Sala. You can get that at screenaddiction.com. And uh, what else? I guess that's pretty much it. We're working on some exciting new things right now. And uh, we'll have probably some new announcements to make soon. Okay. Uh, let us know. And uh, we'll be glad to have you return. This was just a terrific uh, afternoon spent with you, Frank. And I hope the audience really enjoyed the wealth of great information you presented. I hope so, too. Yeah. So, uh, Barbara, do you have any – we're down to – Two minutes, barely. Uh, Barbara, do you want to wrap up anything? Present your um, just that I've seen the Klaus Donut Chronicles, and um, matter of fact, I have a copy of it, um, and it's fabulous. It really is. It's something everybody should check out because when when you look at these articles, that the, a lot of them have come through time, totally intact with amazing qualities connected to them that there is no explanation to. So <clears throat> learning what we don't know about is far more fun than learning what we think we already know. But that said, I like to think of our, I like to think of our films as the antidote to the dumbing down of society. Yes. <laughs> um, That's a good way to look at it. Our educational system is absolutely dumbing down our children. So when you put this kind of information out there, it's amazing and it's fabulous. And I can't thank you enough for being here with us today. This has been such a profound show. And um, it will be up on YouTube shortly. Um, Mark, back to you. Okay. Well, um, yeah, we're uh, just about out of of time. Uh, We'll see everyone 
Monday. It's definitely and time to say good night. <laughs> yeah, Monday, Tuesday, and next Saturday again. And stay, uh, thank you so much, Frank and Barbara. And uh, keep us in mind if you need anything else publicized. We're glad to have you back, and we'll see everyone Monday. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Now.